New masking recommendations for schools, but a new state law has one district leader saying his hands are tied. We're significantly compromised in our ability to abide by CDC guidance or guidelines. In the wrong place at the wrong time, what Tucson police say you should do if you end up in a situation with an active shooter. You have three options, it's run, hide, or fight. And the monsoon makes a memorable entrance, dumping record rainfall on Southern Arizona. If you're working on trying to improve short-term drought conditions, this is exactly the way you do it. Hello and welcome to Arizona 360. I'm Lorraine Rivera. Thanks so much for joining us. New masking recommendations from the CDC resulted in mixed reactions from leaders in Arizona. The CDC now advises that fully vaccinated people mask up indoors if they live in a place where transmission is substantial or high. That applies to most counties in the state. But in a statement, Governor Doug Ducey said Arizona will not change a new law barring mask mandates in schools. He also criticized the new guidance, calling it an example of the Biden administration's failure to contain the pandemic. On the other hand, Tucson Mayor Regina Romero announced masks will be required at city facilities. The CDC is also recommending everyone in K-12 schools wear a mask regardless if they're vaccinated or not. Preventing an outbreak as the new school year approaches is at the top of the mind for Southern Arizona's largest school district. More than $265 million federal dollars poured into the Tucson Unified School District this year as it managed fallout from COVID-19. The dollars went to everything from staff pay raises to Chromebooks, masks, and new air filters. Superintendent Gabe Trujillo says the district felt confident bringing the 90 school sites up to health standards for its 42,000 students and 8,000 staff. But he says Arizona's law that prohibits the district from requiring masks or vaccines presents a challenge. The county health department will step in and declare things like the outbreaks and manage the quarantine conversations. Does that take some of the pressure off of you and your school board members? That's going to be a tremendous assistance to school board members and to our administrators, not just here in the superintendent's office, but the administrators that are going to be mostly on the on the front end of this and at the tip of the spear are going to be your principals and assistant principals. They are the ones that are going to be facing angry parents and upset members of the public. And to have the county health department step in and prescribe, if you will, how many days each student or employee needs to sit out, either in quarantine or isolation, depoliticizes it for us, especially when you start talking about quarantine and isolation requirements and how they may differ for vaccinated versus unvaccinated students or employees. We just don't wanna be in the middle of that as this issue becomes more heavily politicized as the days go by. Classrooms look differently than they have in the past. Things like plexiglass. Will cohorts be in the cafeteria so you don't have all the mingling? We're significantly compromised in our ability to abide by CDC guidance or guidelines. Uh, we're going to have students that are going to be sitting a lot closer than six feet, even three feet. Uh, we're going to have students that are not going to be wearing masks. We're going to have students that will be wearing masks. I want to pledge to all of our parents that ask their kids to wear masks. We will be, to the best of our ability, helping you uh, by enforcing uh, those students that you give us permission to through your parental authority, that you want them wearing masks. We're going to work with our teachers to make sure that the kids that have been identified as their parents wanting them to wear masks, that we are going to be tracking them throughout the day to make sure that they keep those masks on. So we're going to do what is what is within the realm of our authority 
what's in the realm of reason to be able to support the parents that still want their kids wearing masks. There's going to be a number of our classrooms that will still be utilizing uh, not necessarily plexiglass, but we've got some plastic dividers. In some cases, we have small plexiglass dividers between students. But as your class sizes grow, your ability to use those devices is significantly compromised. So I think we're going to see less and less of that. Uh, but the good news is, is we're still going to have uh, air purification units inside every classroom, every common area, every office, and just about every place on all of our campuses and district buildings. So that's good. Uh, we're still going to have uh, COVID-19 rapid antigen testing available on site at all of our sites uh, in our health services offices so that employees and students presenting with symptoms can get tested absolutely immediately and they can be identified and uh, called into the Pima County Health Department. So it's not all doom and gloom. But we still have some very, very effective mitigation strategies that will be in play as we start school on August 5th. Pima County has what may seem like a low threshold when it comes to declaring an outbreak to students who are somehow linked, and then it would have to declare an outbreak. Do you have the staff to support if everybody has to go home or go into a quarantine space? We do. That's something that we got really, really good at uh, in 2020. Uh, we have the infrastructure now. TUSD deployed uh, just shy of 25,000 Chromebooks across the district. We are effectively now, uh, when you combine the devices that the district that the district is able to provide to students, and the 30 or 40 percent of our district that already has their own devices, families that. Uh, through their own means, have been able to provide iPads or Chromebooks to their kids. When you combine those two segments of our student body, we're pretty much a one-to-one -one district at this point. Uh, so that infrastructure now allows us to roll into remote learning at a moment's notice if there is an outbreak, if we have to close a classroom, uh, if we have to close a grade level, if we have to close a school, we're fully confident now that the infrastructure it exists that will be able to serve those hundreds of kids remotely for the 10 or 14 days that they may be in quarantine or isolation. To comply with the state law, you have to be very careful about the language you use when vaccines or masks are even um, being discussed. What sort of guidance will you offer your teachers when students are teasing each other about masks or vaccines or, you know, teachers want to offer their thoughts on science? We have existing governing board policy around espousing one's personal, political, religious or social beliefs or using our positions inside of the district to espouse a particular partisan or religious belief. And unfortunately, now talking about science and talking about aspects of the pandemic that's supposed to keep everybody safe is now kind of in that category. Uh, we're working really, really hard with our teachers and our principals right now to practice grace and neutrality and to treat everybody the same. We're gonna see some very extreme behaviors uh, from the public on both sides. Uh, as they come into our school offices, we have uh, folks on one side angry with us that we're not enforcing masks, masks for 100% of the student body or for employees, not thoroughly understanding that we can't. And then we have folks equally angry with us that we're not banning masks and not going 100% maskless and wanting us to take Senate Bill 2898 and use it to say, not only should you not be masks optional, you should be masks banned. Everybody needs to be maskless. 
So unfortunately, we're caught in the middle and the challenge is going to have to be how we create an environment of mutual respect and tolerance around these two very, very diverse and extreme points of view around this issue. Yeah, interesting year ahead. It's going to be very interesting. All right, Dr. Trujillo from Tucson Unified School District, thank you. Thank you, Lorraine. Always good to be back. Anybody here for the COVID? Arizona 360 saw some of the district's efforts to vaccinate eligible students against COVID-19 at an immunization clinic at Catalina High School. Students ages 12 and up could get the Pfizer vaccine if they wanted. We spent the last year literally just stuck at home. And uh, he's he's been at home so much, he's really tired of it, you know? And uh, so I've been trying to get him vaccinated so he can get out again. Good job. <laughs> I was I was nervous because I'm scared of shots, but I was excited and have I, w I felt better knowing that I was able to do this and go to school and feel safer. Okay, so there's your first. The district's Family Resource Center has long hosted immunization clinics this time of year for other required shots. Since May, it has worked with the Pima County Health Department to also offer the COVID vaccine. Pre-COVID, we were always doing these big events to help families. Um, I think right now, to me, there's a greater impact right now. There might be some hesitancy from families, from staff members, but I think if we can offer these kinds of events, that kind of helps calm fears, I think, as students go back to school. Okay. Whew. You're all done. As parents prepared to send their children back to school, we got guidance on how to encourage the best safety measures from Dr. Wasim Balan, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Phoenix Children's. The message that we continue to emphasize now is vaccination. This is our most important tool at this point in the pandemic. What I can tell everybody is that the vaccine is working. It's a very effective vaccine, no matter which one we're talking about. Uh, the main goal of the vaccine is to keep people out of the hospital and if even if they get infected after the vaccine, to make sure that they're having a mild infection, not a severe infection. And we've seen that happening now. More than 99.5% of the hospitalizations recently have been in unvaccinated people. And we're seeing this in teenagers too. So that's where the emphasis should be in terms of how effective this vaccine. The other thing that I also emphasize is, you know, the flip side of this is people start talking about the adverse effects or the, the complications of the vaccine. We've given more than 200 million doses of uh, the vaccines in the U.S. And obviously, we haven't seen any significant adverse effects that would make us alarmed that there should be any hesitation about taking this vaccine. And if you're not old enough to receive the vaccine, your recommendation is to wear a mask. Correct. And we're hoping that, you know, the age group that would be eligible for the vaccine is going to change by the end of this year. But obviously, until then and until we have the, uh, the approval for the younger ages, we need to continue, all of us, not just kids, continue to be vigilant about, you know, the masking, hand washing and physical distancing if possible. Now, this is an airborne virus. So when kids pull down their mask when they're playing or when they're eating, what sorts of things should they be mindful of when they do make that decision? So, uh, you know, obviously we can't keep the mask on 24 seven. There are going to be situations where you need to pull down the mask. Um, you, the important things to do is to make sure that your hands are clean when you're, you know, moving the mask around your face. Uh, you know, do whatever you need to do. If you want to take a sip of water, pull it down, take a sip of water, put it back on and make sure that it's fitting appropriately. And that means, you know, it's covering both the mouth and the nose. And we want it to be fitting snugly on both sides of the face. 
especially now with this Delta variant, which seems to be more contagious, where there's more chance that someone who's exposed to the virus or catching the virus simply because it's a, it's a more abundant virus when it's released from the respiratory tract. Okay, so let's say you have a child in your office and you're trying to encourage them to wear a mask. What do you say to them? Um, so I usually use examples. So in terms of, you know, look at us all, look how we're, you know, wearing a mask. We work in a hospital, we work in a hospital. You know, obviously a lot of the people who are working there are kind of experts and they're used to, um, um, you know, those situations and we should lead by example, basically. That's one of the important things to do because sometimes you're talking to the child, but you also see that at the same time, the parent is not completely, you know, following all the instructions about how they need to be dealing with their masks. So that's that's another strategy that we also emphasize, not just to the kids, but also to the parents in terms of leading by example. All right, Dr. Wasim Balan from Phoenix Children's. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nationwide gun violence remains at the center of a heated debate. One analysis from the Washington Post found gunfire has killed more than 8,000 people so far this year. In Tucson, police say there has been a 63% increase in homicides over the last two years. That includes the lives of three people in a mass shooting earlier this month. The gunman, who was shot by police, also died in the hospital. This happened just weeks before Tucson police planned to resume its active killer preparedness trainings for the public. An unfortunate coincidence that underscores the importance of those trainings. Tony Banyago has more. On Sunday, July 18th, two EMTs from American Medical Response were parked at Silver Lake Park in Tucson. According to Tucson police, they were waiting to respond to a medical call when they were approached by a man who pointed to a nearby fire and then shot the EMTs. One of them was 20-year-old Jacob Dindinger. For several days, he fought for his life in intensive care, but he succumbed to his injuries late Thursday night, July 29th. Paramedic Damon Schilling is a spokesperson for the company. We spoke to him prior to Dindinger's death. You know, he just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time where something just, that some, somebody decided to take it upon themselves to, to do a heinous act upon some innocent people that are just here to help people within the community. Police later identified the shooter as 35-year-old Leslie Scarlett. He's also accused of killing or injuring several others. I would say in the recent years, we've seen an increase in, in first responder attacks throughout the country, but this is still something that's a tragedy. It's not something that we uh, expect. It's something that we definitely anticipate. It's something that we talk about with not only our employees, but it's taught in EMS schools or EMT classes across the country. The Tucson Police Department also wants residents to be prepared in the worst-case scenario. It offers a series of classes called Active Killer Preparedness Trainings. The trainings were suspended last year due to the coronavirus, but they are getting started once again, and this one had been scheduled prior to the deadly attack on July 18th. The class is mandatory for city employees, with some availability for the public. While we were not allowed to record the training, afterwards we spoke to Sergeant Alan Smith, who leads the class. We offer the Department of Homeland Security's sponsored Run, Hide, Fight. Um, and that is a model of a system of techniques, if you will, to how to combat a violent encounter. Um, and depending on the situation that is presented to you, 
you have three options. It's run, hide, or fight. And that's what we explain here to the folks. 30-year-old Alex Rasmussen heard about the class on Facebook. He spoke to his mother, Rita, and both agreed it was worth their time. I wanted to be more aware of my surroundings, where I go. I go to a lot of music festivals, and when the incident happened in Vegas, that was an eye-opener for me. What do we do in that situation? And I want to be able to get out of there alive, and I want to be able to help others get out of there alive. One of the things they recommend is that if you go into a store, look at all the possible exits, hiding places, and so on. Is that something you had thought about in the past? Not, not really. I mean, you know, you walk in the door, so you know where the door is, but do you know where a possible other door is? And uh, so that was, it was good to have that reminded, that reminder of it. Sergeant Smith says it's a necessary conversation. If you don't plan ahead and if you don't think about these things, which might be admittedly uncomfortable for you at first, but if you don't think about these things ahead of time and build a plan, a personal safety plan for yourself, you could be a victim. But these attacks can surprise anyone, even professionals with the proper training. Rita Rasmussen says she was very upset by the incident on July 18th. Oh, it's terrible. It, you know, people have forgotten that that person next to him is their neighbor, their friend, family to someone. And it's, it's full of hate and it's very upsetting to me. It's heartbreaking every day to see what's going on. 115 shots fired, suspect down. The suspect, Leslie Scarlett, was shot by a police officer and died three days later from his injuries. He had a criminal history and mental health issues, according to investigators. Meanwhile, all types of emergencies keep occurring on a daily basis, and first responders like Jacob Dindinger selflessly answer those calls. And that's one of these reasons why this is so devastating for us, because it is our first experience where we, you know, we, we know across the country it's been an experience for people. And, and so from an industry perspective, we've suffered along with our brothers and sisters across the country. But obviously, this happening to us for the first time here in Tucson or even in Arizona, it, it, it it resonates a little differently and we really appreciate all of the love and support that comes from the community because in a time like this that it does matter that was tony paniagua reporting we'll link to fundraisers for the shooting victims and share information about the trainings with this story on azpm.org as for the motive on july 18th that still isn't entirely clear but arizona daily star reporter caitlin schmidt looked into recent events leading up to it that offer clues about the gunman's mental health, as well as an earlier encounter he had with Tucson police. She joined us to discuss what she learned. I mean, this is really a tragic turn of events all around. Um, we know that Leslie Scarlett had a criminal history. Um, he did six years in prison for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon when he was younger. Um, he got out in 2013, seemed to stay out of trouble, um, had a misdemeanor domestic violence related conviction in 2017, and then for all intents and purposes kind of went on with his life until January. Um, in January, there was a house fire across the street from where Leslie was living with his girlfriend, and it was the house of his mother and her boyfriend, his stepfather. Um, we learned that that night of the fire, Leslie Scarlett came running out of his house and went running into the burning house and carried both his mother and stepfather out um, they both subsequently died. 
He spent about a month in the hospital. He was burned pretty badly, about 80% of his body. And then um, things started to go downhill from there, it seems like. In March, late March, police were called to his neighborhood for reports of a man um, walking into front yards yelling, fire, fire. Um, when they arrived, he didn't respond to officers. He didn't seem to recognize that they were there, so they attempted to detain him. There was a brief struggle. Um, they got him in handcuffs, and the girlfriend came out and said that he had been struggling um, since the death of his parents. Um, she believed he had some PTSD, and he was taken for a mental health evaluation. Criminal history and mental health, and then one of your recent stories featured crisis response. So yes. he was on somebody's radar, so to speak, but it, it, who, how closely does law enforcement work with crisis response to say, hey, you've got the same name, we've got a name over here, let's divide and conquer some of our information? So not closely enough, um, so the police chief tells me, and it seems that that was the problem here. So police recognized, you know, when they went to his house in March, they could certainly arrest him if they wanted to, um, but clearly this was a man in mental health crisis. So they took him to our local crisis response center, um, which is a 24-7 facility that law enforcement can drop people off for evaluations for their mental health, but they don't know what happened to him from there because there really isn't a great communication system in place. Um, police only really learn about somebody if they flag some triggers in their system. So if he became violent, if there were more calls for service, if they needed to call and respond to criminal activity, or if he was court ordered for treatment and refused it, which did not happen in this case. So because Leslie Scarlett was no longer a criminal nuisance, police don't really know what happened to him. There's a lot of your reporting that doesn't make it into the story or the headline. Moving forward, what sorts of conversations are all these agencies having to say, we can't let this happen again? So there has been some discussion in the past, and we're looking into it again, of co-locating um, the crisis line, which is where people can call for welfare checks, evaluations, that sort of thing, into the public safety um, communications department so that when a call comes in either to 911 or the crisis line, they can share information. And that way the crisis line will know if they should perhaps have an officer come out and be on standby a block away, or officers will know if they're responding to a call that actually should have a mental health specialist with them at that call, perhaps instead of law enforcement. So that's something that um, Police Chief Magnus has stressed that he really wants to move forward with. It's the city, so, you know, government moves slowly. Um, but I, open communication, I know, is something that they're hoping for. And are there enough people? I mean, you talk about resources and wanting to create these intervention programs, but is there staff? No, that's the other problem. You know, I, TPD would love to be able to put uh, social workers in patrol cars, but they don't have the funding to hire those social workers. It's not in the city budget. so we're really quite limited. And it needs to trickle down, not just from you know the county or the city, we need this to happen at the state level. We put millions of dollars into um, justice services, not just, not just prisons and jails, but the court system. But that funding for mental and behavioral health is just not there. It's the same, you know, there's not enough money to go around, same thing with education. But we're at a really critical time where I think people are starting to understand that mental health and substance use disorder is not criminal. It is a public health issue, and we need the funding to treat it as such. Okay, Caitlin Schmidt from the Arizona Daily Star, thank you for your reporting. Thanks.
The monsoon arrived in full force, making July one of the wettest in Tucson history. Recent storms dumped more than seven inches of rain on the city. It's a welcome surprise for experts like University of Arizona climatologist Mike Crimmins. We got his assessment on rain totals so far and his prediction on what's to come. So when we look at events like we saw last week, it's not unprecedented. They're rare. We see them, you know, every five, 10 years. Um, and it usually happens right around the end of July. So once we move into August, we're usually kind of in that humidity and we'll start to see those daily rounds of thunderstorms. And then, you know, by the end of the month, we're starting to see the monsoon pattern really start to retreat back to the south and we get into more fall weather. What caused it to fall at the levels that it did here in Arizona and even New Mexico? Yeah, well, the first thing was the first ingredient was moisture. Lots and lots of moisture coming up from the Gulf of California that was in place. And then we had this um, upper level low pressure system that actually moved in from the east towards the west. That's unusual. We usually see that in the, you know, in the wintertime, those lows move from west to east. But given our, where our high pressure system was, this one snuck in from the east towards the west. That's um, going to destabilize the atmosphere. It's going to lift a lot of moisture all at once, and that rain's going to fall out in large, widespread areas. All right. Every time you're on the show, I ask if this rainfall is going to make a dent in the drought. What do you say this time? You know, this, this event in particular was you couldn't have designed a better drought buster. I mean, and I should back up. It didn't bust the drought, but if you're working on trying to improve short-term drought conditions, this is exactly the way you do it. It was long duration, widespread, um, and, you know, moderate rainfall. So it ended up putting down lots and lots of water in the soil. So that's really going to improve short-term drought conditions. But we really are in both short-term drought and long-term drought. So this is just the beginning of solving that long-term drought problem. We're going to need to do this, you know, a couple more, not that particular event, but just getting some rain through the rest of the season at average levels would be great. Then we're already looking forward to next winter. We really need to see that kind of wintertime precipitation snowpack of the upper elevations to start to, to work on the longer term drought conditions across the region. All right, it's time to break out that Homer's bucket and try to harvest some of the water. Now, last time you were on the show, you were talking about wildfires. This rainfall, does it do anything for the Southwest when it comes to the wildfire risk that we know so well here in the desert? Yeah, it pretty much shut it down. And, you know, this is what we rely on for wildfire management in the Southwest is the arrival of monsoon moisture and then the precipitation to really shut down those wildfire conditions. And it did it. It did it early again. It did it on time. And, and that was that allowed a lot of resources being tied up in the Southwest to be released to move to other parts of the West so they could fight the fires that are erupting all across the West. All right, we have a few more uh, press releases coming from the Weather Service here in Tucson saying the rain is coming. Won't be similar to what we have seen, but what do you predict about the coming weeks? Oh, I, th I again, it's, I'm a climatologist, so I'm, you know we're kind of right at the peak of the monsoon activity through the first week of August. You know, we usually get a couple more rounds of events. There'll be some dry periods in there as well. That's fairly normal. And then once you get into the beginning of September, we start to, the, the Northern Hemisphere starts to remember that fall is coming. And so the, the monsoon starts to retreat. So, you know, I'm really hopeful that we can at least get through August with a couple more good rain events, keep those rainfall totals up, and then we'll get to the end of the season with hopefully above average rainfall. All right. And every drop certainly helps. All right. Dr. Mike Crimmins from the University of Arizona. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for now. Thanks so much for joining us. To get in touch, visit us on social media or send an email to Arizona360 at azpm.org and let us know what you think. We'll see you next week.